this morning we continue in our series in the book of Revelation, which is a series about who is coming and what is coming. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time on when is he coming because uh, we don't know when he's coming, but we'll give you some kind of uh, idea as far as how some of the things might play out. But it's really about a person, uh, who, Jesus, and it's also about what, some of the things that he's said that's going to happen uh, in the days to come. As we think about God's messages to the church, he has done that in a variety of different ways. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, messages uh, to various churches, the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, the church at Philippi, as well as some others as well. And it was really spoken to them for what they were going through at that particular time. But we get to read other people's mail, you know, 20 centuries down the road, because those same truths apply to us as well. And that's also true in the most personal part of the book of Revelation is, as in chapter 1, we have the unveiling of Jesus and his majesty and power and his righteousness and holiness and his coming uh, as the judge uh, for all mankind as well as, as the one who is to be worshipped and honored. But as he moves from unveiling at least the first picture of Jesus in chapter 1, he then goes into chapters 2 and 3 and speaks to the churches. And he speaks to the churches because uh, there's some things that Jesus wants to tell them. And the good news is, is that Jesus wants to tell us some things as well. And the churches that he speaks to, it's not that everyone in that church were doing exactly the same thing or were in the same spiritual plane or journey as everyone else, but the majority of the church has some characteristics that, that God wanted to speak to. And so we saw that a couple weeks ago in the church at Ephesus, and we're going to see it now in the church of Smyrna. And in this morning, we're going to, in some ways, kind of look at a church that's somewhat um, kind of like oxymorons. It, it, it doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. You know what an oxymoron is? It's like jumbo shrimp. I mean, that doesn't make sense. You know? There's some things like um, honest politicians. How do those two words come together? Or, or e- even, even when we think about things that we experience, like grief. Uh, is there such a thing as good grief? Uh, all, all those kind of things... Um, you know, kind of, there's some truth to them, but they don't seem to, they, they don't seem like they should fit together. Even, even in things you might consume, like the idea of bittersweet. Well, which is it? Is it bitter or is it sweet? You know, well, it's bittersweet. And so as, as we think about that, that's true in the Christian life as well. We hear, hear certain things and it makes sense in one way, and then, then we add to it and we think, well, th- those two don't seem to fit. Well, this morning, we're, we're going to be looking at a church that is uh, of, of the seven of the churches that we'll be looking at is one of the best churches. And, and you think about that, and you think, well, if it was one of the best churches, maybe that's the kind of church I would like to join. What, what, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you like to, to, to belong to the best church? And then you, then you begin to read about the church, and you say, well, I, it might be one of the best churches, but I'm not sure I want to move there. I, I'm not sure I want to join. Because the church we're going to look at is, is the suffering church. And you, you might be thinking, okay, best and suffering. Do those seem to go together? Are they somewhat oxymoronic? I don't know if that's a word, but, you know, can you, can you put best and suffering together? Well, that's what happens in the church we're about to see. But before we look at that, let's go back by way of, of a little bit of review. And, and hopefully by the end of the looking at the seven churches, you'll have a handle on each church to say, okay, what is, what's a lesson to take away from? If, if, if nothing else, there, there might be a word that will bring back to memory the main idea. 
in the first church, the church at Ephesus, which was a great church in so many different ways. It was a busy church. It was doing all kinds of things for God. It was doing it at the point where they were almost toiling by way of exhaustion. They were working hard. They had a high view of Scripture. They, uh, they, were, they had a servant heart. And yet there was one thing that, that Jesus had against them. They had left their first, what? Love. And, and so in some ways you could describe this church as the, the loveless church. I kept going back and forth how I wanted to find this church. I, I thought for a moment I might call it the less loving church. And then that didn't even sound like a word. So I said, well, the loveless church. And then I thought, again, this over the weekend, I think another way you could put it is the church that loves less. Because when you think about it, I'm sure if they had heard these words directly from Jesus face to face, they would say, Jesus, kind of like Peter. Peter, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. And then he said, well, then show it. Then live it out. And particularly here, the, the idea here, and I think I take it as simply as possible. What he means by the church that left its first love, they had simply chosen, whether it was subtly or intentionally, they were no longer loving Jesus first. That, that's what it means to, to lose your first love. And you can see that in human relationships. When marriages begin to break down, what happens? The, that, that person you were infatuated with, that person that you were willing to vow before God to be joined to, all of a sudden, they, they didn't seem that important to you. Things, other people, whatever it might be, began to crowd that person out. And no longer was that person the person you thought of first when you got up in the morning. And as we think about a human relation, probably the most committed relationship would be the, the, the relationship between a man and a woman united in marriage. Is, and that breaks up because of the human sin that lives within us. But when we think about our relationship with God, nothing on His end ever breaks up that relationship. And what He is simply saying to us is that He deserves our first love. And he gives them some action statements. If, if you've come to that point, you realize that's true, then you know, what can you do? First of all, you can remember. And I pause here for, uh, for a little bit in this message because this is what we just did with communion service. That's why God gave us this, so that we might not somehow get so busy we forget where we were and where we are in Christ. That Jesus made the supreme sacrifice for us. We would be dead in our sins facing eternal judgment apart from his great love that satisfies God's wrath so that we can be at peace with God. And if somehow we minimize that, then we miss the gospel. We miss who Jesus is. To think of, of again, that, that story of the woman who came to Jesus and the whole end of that story was this. He who somehow believes that they've been forgiven a little in relationship to God will love in a little way to God as well. So we are told to remember, remember where we were, and then the challenge, well, once we remember it, are we willing to repent, which simply says, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to change. And then redo or repeat what you used to do before. And primarily, you could say, I, I, I want to spend quality time with the one I love. I want to talk with him. I want them to talk with me out of, your, out of his word. I, I want to do that which pleases him. A love relationship is marked by pleasing the one you love. 
And, and so one message to the church, and again, every church can, can apply that to their lives and say, I, I want to love God first. I don't want to be a loves less church. I want to be a church that loves much church. Then he turn, turns to the church at Smyrna. And the church of Smyrna is the suffering church. The suffering church. The word uh, uh, Smyrna is, is really kind of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word myrrh. And the word for myrrh uh, spoke of, and it's, we, we see it as, as Jesus is giving one of the, the three identified gifts from the three wise men, or how many wise men were there. Frankie said it's gold and myrrh. And, and myrrh was a, a, came out of a plant that you had to crush to, to, to get the fragrance out of it. And it was used at the, at the death and burial of Jesus, and it was used at his birth. But in many ways, what myrrh was used is, it was, a, it was as a painkiller. And, and it brought relief to someone who was going through suffering. And, and this is kind of an oxymoron related to this, even the city geographically. But, because when Smyrna was at, at its height of its glory... It was, it was known as the beautiful city, the, the city where everybody wanted to go to vacation. It was, it was, a, it was just a light in the midst of, of all that was around them. And yet it became marked as a church, and just because the name of the city has the idea of being a painkiller or, or myrrh, it really became marked as a, as a place for Christians where you, you could not be a nominal follower of Jesus Christ. You, you, couldn't just, you couldn't just say you were a Christian. You had to live it out because people were, were bringing you to the crossroads of life and said, do you believe Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord? It was, it was the place where the height of emperor worship was experienced. And you began to be marked out as either a loyal citizen of the empire or someone who was so preoccupied with your religion that you didn't follow the edicts of Rome. And so it became a suffering church. And the end of the story here with the church of Smyrna was that it was, it was one of the best churches because suffering will either make you better or it will make you what? Bitter. And really that's kind of the main idea this morning is as we think about suffering. God allows that and sometimes directs that to come into our lives so that we might become better rather than bitter. And even as we think about it, either what you're going through will drive you to God or you'll choose to allow it to drive you what? Away from God. And, and whether, as we think, I was, I was saying this the first service, if, if you want to join the best church, okay, we can all go join the best church. We're going to go to Libya right now in Syria. Anybody want to jump on that plane? And in a sense, you go, well, I wouldn't want to live there at this moment. But I, I'll, I'll probably say, I'd say every true Christian there is on fire for God, right? They're, they're singing hymns when they're about to have their heads taken off their bodies. And they are, they are proclaiming, even their families are saying, Though ISIS thought this was a defeat of the Christians, what it did is allow Christianity to get front page coverage. That in the midst of suffering, Jesus' name was lifted up. And, and whether for most of us are not in that martyrdom condition, at least in the nation that we live in now, there's other sufferings we go through. 
And whether it's minor comparison to others, it's real to us and it's real to you. And I guess I, this is, the, this is the, the idea I want you to be thinking through this morning. Uh, all of us have things in our lives right now we wish weren't there. Would we agree with that? Are, there's things in our lives right now we wish were different. And we can put the S word around that. that we're, somehow we're suffering because life is not ideal. Now, you can get preoccupied by little things or big things that will draw you away from your relationship with God. And God says, that's in your life not to draw you away, but to. There's all kinds of verses in the Bible that are challenging. Have you found that to be true? I mean, Jesus even said to the, the, the beginning followers, if, if, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. And, and the cross was not something you hung around your neck, and there's nothing wrong with having a cross around your neck. But it was an instrument of, of death. You've got to be willing to die for me if you're going to live for me. That's pretty challenging. But there are other verses that, are, that, that seem to be just great verses, but if you think about them for a moment, they're just as challenging. You know, Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Again, I say rejoice. And First Thessalonians, in all things give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you do that when there are things in your life you wish weren't there, major or minor? The only way that happens is you find your joy in the Lord, not in your circumstances. You are thankful for what you have in Him, not what you don't have in what this world offers. So the church at Smyrna was a church that got better rather than bitter, they ran to God rather than ran away from Him because they, they looked at suffering as a way for them to depend upon God, not to depend upon themselves. And so I guess in some ways I'm saying we all should take a radical different view of the things in our lives that we don't always enjoy, but we see a purpose for. It will draw us closer to Him to depend upon Him and not ourselves. So what were they going through? Let's look at the text. This is, this is the shortest letter to the church, though it's got all kinds of great truths in it. Now let's look at it. Verse 8. And to the angel, probably the pastor or a leader in the church, a messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. And who is that? That's, that's Jesus. He was the one who was dead and now alive. And that's particularly important for this church who was facing that kind of persecution. He says this, and he says, now here's what you're going through. Here's the suffering you're going through. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now that's one verse, and it's a mouthful, but let's identify three things that they were going through. Number one, they were, they were going through, and they were faithful, because there's no words of correction in this church to this church, says, I, I know that you're faithful during persecution. The word for tribulation there has the idea of pressure or stress. And really what they were facing, and we already talked about that, is that they were going through in, a, in a, an environment where emperor worship was going on, and they were rejecting that. And because of that, their lives were just filled with trouble. And they were losing out on things that, normally they would be able to experience and enjoy because they identify themselves as Christians. And we need to realize that at times that, that that will face us as well. Because we identify ourselves as Christians, we might lose what we would say fairly or justly should be ours. 
in, in this service, I think probably a number of you, if you've lived in California for a length of time, remember, remember when Daryl Gates was the police of, uh, chief of police in, in uh, L.A.? Well, the person who was next in line was a man named Bob Vernon. And Bob Vernon was uh, a committed Christian. And he was, as Daryl Gates went down, it was, uh, it was totally accepted that he was going to take on that position. But there was a council member who, who did not like Bob Vernon because of his position on a variety of different things and, and, and raised suit that he should, was not qualified to become chief of police. And it was simply because he, he was a Christian and took biblical stands on things. And so he, he made up all these rumors about Bob Vernon having a God squad and, and he was unfairly supervising people and people who were in his God squad got promoted and people who weren't in his God squad didn't get promoted. And there was no basis for that fact. But because of that, Bob Vernon did not become chief of police, which was a position he was longing for all his life. And he had made a stand for Christ, and it cost him. But let's only go back a few decades. Um, are you familiar with what happened in Atlanta fairly recently? Uh, in 2015, in the uh, Atlanta uh, Journal there, uh, the mayor of Atlanta, Casimir Reed, uh, decided to, to fire um, Kelvin... Cochran, who was the chief of fire, the fire chief in Atlanta. And the reason that he fired him is because two years before, he had self-published a book about his faith. And he, and, he, and, he, and he took a position on homosexuality as a Christian. Not as a fire chief, but as a Christian. And because he took a stand as a Christian and, and had a book published by himself, not by the, the city, he fired him as being chief of the police, a uh, chief of, of fire, simply because he was a Christian. Now, there, there's a variety of other ways that sometimes if we take a stand for Christ that our lives will be affected. But here's just some recent ones. The other thing that they had been faithful to was they were faithful during poverty. They, because of their stand for Christ, had lost, and gave you a couple of illustrations of people within our a society that had done that. But they were impoverished. Living within a rich city, they had very little of their own. And you could see that. After a while, people would decide, I'm not buying products from you. I'm not going to hire you. And they became ostracized in their particular local, local city. And sometimes that will happen to, for Christians today. There's all kinds of things happening in terms of People who decide whether they're going to sell a baked good to someone who wants to have a particular type of marriage. And they fall out on that. But the thing that's interesting, too, is that not only um, are you facing poverty and tribulation or persecution, but also personal attack. You see that section there where it says in verse, um, um, verse 8. I'm in the wrong chapter here. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, where it said, uh, actually verse 9, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What that all means is, is that they were being blasphemed. Now, normally when we think of blasphemy in the church, we think of a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. But basically that just means speaking evil of. That's what literally that word it means. And, and when the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit happened in the time of Jesus, what happened is that, is that Jesus did the miraculous. And people could not deny that. When someone who was blind and now could see, they couldn't say, well, you didn't really do that. When someone could not walk and now they could walk, they, they could not say to Jesus, well, you didn't do that. 
when, when, when people who had no food were fed uh, by the multiplication of the fish and the loaves, they couldn't say, well, that didn't really happen. There were too many eyewitnesses. And so what had to happen is that they had to decide another, for another reason why Jesus was able to do what he did. And they said, well, we know it couldn't have been from God, so you must have done it by the power of the evil one, by devil. And so they blasphemed the work of the Spirit, saying it did not come from God, it came from Satan. Well, what happened to them in that day is as they lived out their faith, they were spoken evil of by those who were ethnically Jews, but were not spiritually Jews, who were inwardly believers of the true God. And they were motivated, and they were motivated by the evil one, but they began to spread lies about Christians. And whether you heard this, well, one of the lies that became early in the, in the first and second centuries of the church is that people said, well, you know, these people are dangerous. You know what happens when they gather together in groups? They, they drink things and they eat things. And, and when, they, when they eat things, you know what they're eating? They're eating the flesh of people. When, when, because when they took communion, they said it was the, the body of Jesus. And when they drink the cup, they're not drinking wine or juice. They're drinking the real blood of somebody. And so they, they accused the Christians to be cannibals. They were actually eating people's physical body and drinking their blood. Now, that wasn't true, but that's, that was the rumor that went out. And they were called to be faithful to their faith, whether they were facing persecution, personal poverty, or personal attack. Now, as, as the suffering that they were experiencing purified their faith, as Jesus, speaking to the church, looked at them, he said, in terms of condemnation, I've just commended you for your faithfulness. In terms of condemnation, I have nothing to say. Now, wouldn't that be a blessed experience to sit at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, where where do I need to improve? what, What do I need to do differently? And you know what he says? Nothing. Nothing is wrong with you. Because this suffering has been good for you. The oxymoron of good suffering. Suffering that makes you better, not bitter. But as, as Jesus was, and, and it's so great because he said, I, I know what you're going through, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm empathizing and sympathizing with you and, and upholding you. He, he did give them, not words of correction, but he did give them words of challenge. And I think this is so, so helpful for us as we look what he says to the churches. He says this in verse um, Verse 10. He says, Do not fear. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Now, they were doing well, but what, what he wanted to do was prepare them for what was going to come next. And he, and, he, and he says what is familiar to what most angels say right out of their mouth when they encounter humanoids like us. He, he, as we are in the presence of something from God that's beyond us, we're filled with fear, and the angels say, Do not be afraid. Now, most of the time when we're, we're afraid, we're, we're afraid that something, what's going to happen to us? Something bad's going to happen to us. And, and so we want some assurance for somebody that what, what you think might happen to you will not happen. Do not be afraid. And the angel is saying that to you. He goes, look it, I'm not going to do anything to you. Don't be afraid. I'm just going to tell you a message from God. Whew. Okay, don't have to be afraid. And, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be this, that. We, we can have that in our own experiences. Uh, for those of you 
have been parents, are parents, have you ever been a child? Anybody ever been a child? Okay. Is, you remember um, going to bed, uh, whatever period of time in your life, and all of a sudden uh, you, you, you were afraid of what might be underneath your bed? Remember that? You know, the boogeyman is in the closet or, or there's some kind of creature in there you can't see. And, and so you, you just scream out for your parents to come in and, I think there's something in my room. I think there's something in, in my room. And, and so you run in there and, and you just assure them there's nothing in that room that's going to get them. You look underneath the bed and there's nothing there. Well, maybe some dust balls and things like that, some things you should have cleaned out. But there, there's nothing in there that's going to hurt them. And they say, well, I know, but I'm still afraid. Well, okay, well, I'll leave a light on. And so you can see that there's nothing in your room. And I'll leave the door open so if something happens, you can just tell me and I'll run back in again. And, and so you try to assure them they don't have to be afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of. And that works with worry as well. Have you, have you ever worried about something that never happened? Anybody? Okay. And so we, we tell people not to worry because we're trying to assure them that what they're worried about just isn't going to happen to them. But this passage is so unlike that. Look what he says. Do not be afraid what you're about to suffer. What you, you're telling me not to be afraid or not worried about something that's going to bring me pain? I don't know about you, but if I know I'm going to get pain, I'm, I'm starting to get a little nervous, right? But he says, don't be afraid. Well, maybe it gets better. And he says, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Wait a minute. Are you saying that the evil one's going to be involved in my life and, and some of us here are actually going to be put in jail? Now, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but let, let me just ask you. If, if I could know from a voice from God that some of you today, let's say 15 of you, are going to actually be put in jail for your faith. I mean, really. I mean, it's not, not possible... It's going to happen. Fifteen of you are going to be in jail this year for your faith. How, how, how would you feel about that? Yeah, I'd start to feel a little worried, right? I'd say, I hope that's not me, right? hope that's somebody else. But he said, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid you're going to suffer. Don't be afraid you're going to be put in prison. And then he goes on, and this seems like a blanket statement in the text. He says in, in verse 10, uh, so that you will be tested... And you will have tribulation for 10 days. They were already going through difficult times. He said, no matter how bad it's gonna, it is, it's going to get worse. For 10 days, it will be intense suffering. Now, I could say a lot about these 10 days. Some people look at 10 periods of time through church history, and, and they look at to identify some other specific things. When the Bible uses the word days, if there's no reason to think it's more than days, it's just days. It's not periods. And he's saying, look, at the suffering you're going to have is going to be intense, but it'll be a, a, a governed, shortened period of time, but it'll be intense. But the point I want to make here is, he says, be fearless, even though you have, on a human level, something to fear. And you say, wait a minute, that... That's an oxymoron. How can you be fearless in fearful situations? Does that sound like an oxymoron? Well, how does, that, how does that work? Well, throughout Scripture, there are times where God has placed His people in fearful situations. If you've been going through with the book of Daniel, did that happen to Daniel and his three friends? Whether it's a lion den or whether it's a fiery furnace, those were fearful situations. How could they do that? 
Because we don't have to be afraid if we know who's with us. God's with us. One of my favorite passages in Joshua chapter 1, where verse 9 it says, Do not be fearful, don't be trembled or dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. See, the point this morning is that now or in the future, there are going to be fearful situations that you will encounter and experience. And even though they might not be enjoyable, let's just be honest, they're not going to be enjoyable, they're not something you're looking forward to, you do not have to be fearful. I, I was sharing the first story, it just popped my mind, but many of you, if not most of you, know that my dad is going through uh, Alzheimer's. When I visit him, There are a variety of emotions that come through me. And just to be honest, some, one of them is a little bit selfish um, in terms of how I apply it. Because I, I, I look at my dad and I go, is that going to be me? You know, 20, 20 30 years from now, Ten years from now, five years from now, tomorrow, you know. I mean, it, it, Alzheimer's hits people in their late 40s. Now, you know, Jesus, I think, might co- is, is going to come before then. Or I could get lost and not come back, you know. But the issue, even though that's a distinct, you could say probability, if if Jesus does not come and I live a long life, I don't need to be afraid of that. Because God's with me. This was hard to tell in this service. Um, and God's with my dad, too. It does not change the reality of what he's going through. But he's with him. So the lesson the church who suffers is that we can be fearless and we can be faithful. The last line in verse 10 says this. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. So as we encounter the challenges of life, whether it be minor or major, or it's us or loved ones, we can be fearless and faithful because he's with us. So the question is, as we go through life and we encounter those things that on a natural level, let's, let's be honest, we lean toward bitterness because it's something we prefer not to have in our lives or in our loved ones' lives. We can, we can open up to God and say, God, 
make that an experience while I become better because I depend upon you. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you're so brutally honest to us in Scripture that you do not try to tell us that Christ's followers only encounter the goodness of life, but that we will face things that will bring suffering. But in the midst of suffering, there's blessing because we now depend more upon you than ourselves. And Father, there's no prediction here about whether we will have prison or intense periods of suffering compared to the church at Smyrna. But Father, we know that we will encounter life in such a way that we have to choose to depend upon you to become better rather than bitter. Help us to be bright lights in a world needing to see the hope of Christ. And as testing brings strength and opportunity to show our faith, might that be the result of drawing close to you? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, let's stand as we sing.